Good morning. First, I want to thank uh, Pastor Matt and the uh, elders for the opportunity to be able to speak today. I was excited when I got the phone call. They said, hey, would you, would you be able to speak? I said, sure. I said, you want me to speak on anything or do you have a text? No, we want to assign you a text. And they assigned me this text. And then I wondered if I should be thankful or not, because this text is tough. Is it okay? Uh, we're going to get into the Word today. How many of you love the Word of God? Infallible, inspired, uh, and sufficient for us today, and we're going to have it uh, do its work in our heart today, and I'm, uh, I appreciate your prayers as I minister the Word this morning that God would be glorified in uh, what I say. So thank you again for the privilege of ministering to you. So before we jump in in earnest into the text today, I just want us to take a moment, kind of recap. Some of you may not have been here in prior weeks, and so we're in a series on the book of James, and uh, we're uh, dealing with it uh, because it's such a significant portion of the New Testament, being arguably the earliest book written that's in the New Testament, and being written by the brother of our Lord, the proximity to Christ makes it very, very important. And Pastorally, what, what's at stake here? I think what we're bumping up against in James, kind of on a larger perspective, is the perennial problem that the church has dealt with, and every generation, every Christian has to sort through this. What is that relationship between saving faith and our works? And the tension arises because when we preach the gospel faithfully, and we announce the free grace of God given to all whosoever may believe, we take the free grace of God, and our old sinful nature wants to turn it into a free pass. It's almost like there's a crooked lawyer in every one of us, right? We're always looking for the loopholes. Wow, get out of hell free card. All right, now I'm going to go into the world. And we know that that's not true. And James calls us to that. We know intuitively, because the law of God is written on every one of our hearts, we have a moral obligation to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. That's a high calling. And yet, sometimes we seek to weasel out of that. So last week, we saw the problem with that, that if you have that kind of faith, you really don't have genuine saving faith. Actually, you have a dead faith, and it's not alive. In fact, it's a demonic faith. Even the devils can say certain things that are true about Jesus, sometimes very orthodox things, and yet, obviously, they're not redeemed. So our faith has to be alive. It has to touch our heart and transform our lives. So how does this living faith, then, work itself out in the life of the believer? What difference does it make? Well, James is not shy to tell you, and we're going to look into that today. Some people have described James, if you will, as the, the first handbook of practical Christianity. And for that, uh, we really uh, enjoy James. In fact, a very formative part of my discipleship when I was very young in the faith, I memorized the first chapter of James. I encourage you to do that. It, it's very helpful to you. Now, remember this, though. Before we jump into this, James assumes something. James assumes you have a relationship with Jesus and that, that you know that that relationship is by grace through faith. Everybody good with that? Everybody understands that that's the foundation. In a, in a sense, the way I try to look at James, it's 
because I have that union with Christ and, and because I'm already in covenant with God by His grace, that doesn't mean I don't need to grow. That doesn't mean I don't need to be encouraged. That doesn't mean I don't need the wisdom of God. And if you can kind of see James more or less like the Old Testament book of Proverbs, just real practical, down-to-earth, applied uh, Christianity, I think it will help you. Because James isn't trying to tell you how to be saved apart from faith and apart from grace. What James is trying to say is, how do we live the blessed life? How do we enjoy God's blessing as a Christian, having been saved by God's great grace? And this answers, I think, the heart cry of every believer. Once we've been saved, isn't it our heart's desire to please the Lord? On our best days, Lord, we really we aspire to that. Why? Because God's changed our, our will, our desire. Before we were Christian, did you have any concern about pleasing God? No, but, but now we do. And that's why God in His goodness has given us this very practical book, James. And so the practical wisdom we need uh, that was given, if you will, in what we call a general epistle. Remember, James is written to the church at large. It was to the 12 tribes, the early Jewish Christians that were scattered all over the Roman world. And they needed, like we need, the practical wisdom of how do we live out this Christian life in light of our real struggles and our real temptations. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. And we need that. Why? Because as much as we aspire to please the Lord, there's still a little bit of rebellion in all of us. Someone say, oh me, amen, something. Come on, we're my Baptists. And that rebel force, if you will, is lurking, and it's coiled, ready to spring at any moment. And so God, by the Spirit, in His Word, has given everything we need. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. We need to be encouraged, and it does. We need to be edified, and the Scripture does. We need to be instructed. We need to be corrected. And in today's case, we need to be warned. The warnings are here for our good. That place of rebellion that I talked about often shows up and frequently shows up where? In our words. In fact, if you were to read the whole book of James, you'll see over 20 times in just five chapters, he is talking about what you should say and what you shouldn't say. And so today, we're going to look at that. Now, words are cheap, aren't they? Do you know the average man speaks 7,000 words a day? Women speak 20,000 words a day. I'm not going to go there. You, you fill in the rest. But that's the, that's the struggle, right? Words are plenteous. Add Facebook, add Twitter, and I mean, words are cheap, right? They are in a certain respect, but they're not in another respect. Because we know that words are powerful. Words are very powerful. We've all been impacted by words, for good and for ill. You can remember the words that some people have spoken over your life decades later. You can quote them verbatim because they either encouraged you or they wounded you. In fact, that's why Proverbs reminds us, death and life are in the power of the tongue. This is so critical for us. And our words, if you will, are something like a currency. It's the means of exchange, isn't it? It's the means of exchange between us and God and between each other. By the way, it shouldn't be missed that 
The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, is called the Word, Logos. Words are important. Communication is important. In fact, Jesus in John 6.63 said, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There is a spiritual component to every word we say. In Matthew 12, verse 34, our Lord reminds us that for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our words reveal our deepest longings, our greatest aspirations, and our true theology. But we do have one blessed hope, don't we? We do hold on to that dream that one day, every knee will bow and every what? Tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. One day, every tongue is going to be finally used for what it was intended, to bring glory to Jesus Christ. So we look forward to that day, and we aspire to that day, and we dream that our tongues would be used for its highest and best use. So the purpose of our message today is to talk to you as people of God. I assume you're a believer here today. If you're not, I'll have some words for you at the end. But this is for believers, people who are in covenant with God. How does God's wisdom then apply to the use of our tongue? Now, it's been said, confession is good for the soul, but it's terrible for your reputation. Let me make a confession. It's interesting. It just dawned on me as I was preparing. I've been serving the Lord for 40 years this year, this August. 40 years ago, God, in his great mercy, saved my miserable soul. I was uh, lost. Let me just say, I was a musician in Las Vegas. Do I need to say anything else? Okay, so I was lost, and God saved me, and it was dramatic. And then I got involved in ministry. In fact, that's where I met my wife. I was using my music. We were touring all over the world, doing music evangelism, even behind the Iron Curtain. And I'm all of 22 years old. I'm two years old in the Lord. And one of the guys in the band said, hey, Gary, I drew a picture of you. And this was the pastor, if you will, the spiritual leader of our group. And he handed me a picture, and you know what it was? A tongue with two legs on it. I remember that, right? That's 38 years ago. I've been struggling with, I'm not here to say I've arrived by any means. I'm still fighting this thing 38 years later. And guess what? So are you. I don't care how old you are or how young you are in the Lord. This is going to get close to home, okay? And we're going to let the word do its work in our life. So what's the first thing we need to do? We need to heed the warning because words are weighty. Hear this warning. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So the first thing I want to say to the pastors, to myself, elders, beware. This chapter starts with a very sobering warning to the ministers of Christ's church. An elder must be very careful what he says, especially as as he stands here in the pulpit to speak for God. Because when a biblically qualified elder stands to speak, 
He is literally speaking in the office of Christ. He should be speaking the very words of Christ to God's people. That is a very daunting and sobering reality. In fact, the Apostle Paul struggled with it in his own apostolic ministry. Notice what he says in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, For we, that's the apostles, are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to another a fragrance from life to life. And notice the question, who is sufficient for this, for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak, notice, we speak in Christ. Wow. Who dares to speak for God? James asks us. You better be aware. Speaking for Christ is blood earnest. It is the most serious undertaking, I believe, any human being dares to do, and it should be done in the fear of God. And it should only be done by someone who, like the apostle, was called. How do you know if you're called? Well, we, we talk about it in two ways. You know internally. You have, you're convicted in your spirit that you can't do anything else. And then secondly, you're confirmed by the people of God. They recognize the gifts and callings, and they, they see the fruit of your ministry, and you're confirmed in that. So this warning of judgment is addressed to the elder. And it, by the way, how many of you know there's other warnings in the New Testament? We don't like to hear them, but they're there, and they're there for our good. And we're being warned today. We're warned that there's a judgment to come. Well, what is the nature of that judgment? Well, we, we talked about that. As far as your salvation is concerned, that's not at stake. Remember, we have been bought and paid for by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So this isn't talking about our redemption. We are all, though, even equally saved by the grace of God, but yet we are not equal in heaven. Did you know that? There will be degrees of rewards. And oh, by the way, there are also degrees of punishment in hell. It's clearly taught in the Scripture. So what does that teach us? We live in an ethical world. This is, a, this is God's world. It's His creation. We are His creatures. And you cannot escape the realism that every word we speak, every deed we do, every thought that even crosses our mind is an ethical act. It's reality. And we're going to be judged by them. The true and living God, the Trinity, is perfectly holy, and the Scripture says He judges the world in righteousness. Is that true? Now, we are the recipients of His great grace. How many of you say, praise God, preacher, Talk, tell me about grace? I'll remind you. We've received His grace, and in Jesus Christ, His grace has, has triumphed over judgment, but at a great price, the price of the blood of His own dear Son. But God hasn't changed. God is still holy. God is still righteous. God is still pure, and there is still judgment. And in our heart of hearts, we long for it, don't we? We truly do because it doesn't take much in this world as far as looking around to see there's a lot of injustice around here. 
And there's something innate in us, I believe, by the fact that we bear God's image, that we long for justice. We hope for one day everything that is wrong to be made right. And that is the promise. There is a judgment to come. And this is good news. The Bible says that that Christ will rule and reign until he makes all of his enemies his footstool. And that's where they belong. And we long for that. And it's comforting to know that those who exploit widows and orphans, those who maim and murder, all those who have done such terrible things that even though they may not get justice in this life, they will not escape it. And, And that's comforting to us. Because we know that this is a moral universe and there's a moral God and justice will not always be denied. But in the same way that God is just in meeting out judgment upon his enemies, he's also just in conferring rewards upon his people. And isn't it fair? Isn't it right? Isn't it good? Say, Somebody literally lays down their life as a martyr for the, for the faith that they should receive a crown, and that's what the Scriptures teach. What about the missionary who leaves his family, leaves his culture, leaves everything behind to go to some far-flung point in the world, and he uh, lays down his entire life in service of the kingdom of God? Shouldn't he be rewarded for that or her? Shouldn't they be rewarded? Absolutely. What about a minister who stands week after week in the pulpit and declares to you the uncompromised word of God? A faithful minister. Shouldn't he receive a greater reward? And so it is that God is going to judge us. And James comes with a kind of a cold slap in the face and said, Preacher, you better beware. There is a future greater judgment for you. Isn't this essentially what our Lord taught us in Mark chapter 9, verse 42? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming God's word is the most serious thing you can do. There's too much at stake. We cannot trifle with the souls of boys and girls and men and women. They are immortal souls. It's life and death. It's heaven and hell. And church is not a game. So the preacher, when he stands here, better always preach with judgment in mind. His own first. We will stand before God accountable for what we say. And his hearers, they will stand before God as well. This is ultimate reality. The Puritans had a way of saying it, that we should preach as dying men to dying people. Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, James doesn't stop there, though. He goes on, And I don't like where verse 2 starts because I still think it's kind of a continuation of the same verse uh, in verse 1. And now James pivots, and he's now, he's looking at you. Elders beware, but guess what? Christian beware. Why? Verse 2, for we stumble, for we all stumble in many ways. 
Now, we like it when the other people are getting their comeuppance. Yeah, you tell those preachers, preacher. But now James is holding up the mirror to you. Everything I just said about the elder applies to you, applies to me. I love what it, actually, if you look in the Greek, uh, the, the emphasis on the word all. It says, literally, for in many ways we stumble all. If you were from the south, my family's from the south, all y'all, okay? Every one of us. And we don't just stumble, we stumble a lot. And so that's what the Scripture wants us to see. And everything that we said of the accountability of the elder is true and it applies to you. In fact, look in James chapter 2 where it says, we, that's speaking of all, are to speak as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Again, echoing our Lord's doctrine, Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. As I was walking into church this morning, uh, one of the earlier, uh, Jill, who attends the earlier service, because she had read the text, she said, we're all going to want to cut our tongues out by the end of this sermon. I said, don't worry, we're going to hide all the sharp objects in the kitchen, so you can't do that. But if you're feeling that, you're probably right. All of us have tripping tongues, if you will. We've said empty words. We have loose lips. Jesus is saying, be aware. You have weighty words, Christian. Every phrase you utter will be adjudicated. Every word weighed, every syllable counts. We need God's wisdom. We need God's wisdom. I remember the little saying, again, from my southern heritage, we'll just shut my mouth, <laughs> right? It's going to be real quiet in the car going home today from church because hopefully we will learn the lesson and the wisdom of James. So where do we see this wisdom most poignantly on display. Well, of course, we see it in Christ, and this is intimated in, in verse 2. But, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his own body. Again, echoing an earlier theme from James chapter 1, uh, where James warns us, if anyone does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. See, True Christianity is holistic. It's transformative. It goes right down to your vocabulary, or it should. And if it doesn't, then you haven't gotten Christianity. You've gotten religion, and that's different. You need the power of the Holy Spirit changing you, transforming you into what? Into a perfect man. Well, who is that perfect man if it's not the Lord Jesus himself? And what did, what did Jesus say about his own words? What is it that I wish we could say and what I would like to aspire to be able to say about my own words? Listen how Jesus referred to it in James chapter 12. He says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. How much trouble would we be out of if we could say that about our words? I don't say nothing unless I hear it from heaven itself. 
If it's not the Father's word, I'm not going to say it. Only Jesus never sinned with his mouth. Only Jesus kept covenant with God with his tongue. All of us have fallen. He is the wise man. He is the faithful second Adam. He is the perfect man whose image we aspire to become. So as we grow in grace, hopefully, we learn to speak more like him. As I said, I've been following the Lord 40 years. I wish I was further along. I am embarrassed by the things that come out of my mouth. But as I grow in grace, I hope I'm better than I was when I was 22 and a tongue with legs on it running around. But what I also want us to see in this principle is the nature of sin and how it really works in our lives. Because have you ever noticed sin is thuggish? They like to, sin likes to come up on you and gang up on you, right? And when we go down the road of sin, remember James chapter 1 says we are all dragged away and enticed when we're dragged away by our own evil desires and when sin is conceived, it gives birth to, to death and sin. And, and then what happens? Does that sin usually happen alone? No. It, it, there's groups of things. When we do one sin, we kind of have to do another sin, and we got to cover up, and then we got to lie, and, then we, and, and sin comes as a gang, usually never alone. Well, if that's true about sin, and it is, then positively, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, when, when we are controlled by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit has control of our tongue, I believe obedience comes as a gang too. Because when we're mindful of our tongue, we're also mindful of other things. We're mindful of our thoughts. We're mindful of our deeds. And so by a focus on the tongue, it engages us on a lot of levels spiritually and we all benefit then positively. So thank God for the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, James is going to get real practical here, and he's going to give us some object lessons. He's going to take things that you are very familiar with, and then he's going to turn and show you how that applies to our lives spiritually. And we're going to look at a couple of things from nature here. First of all, um, this is wisdom's object lessons. First of all, interesting thing, horses are controlled by very little bits. Notice, if we put a if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey, it, obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. See that collateral benefit. A large horse, when it can learn to follow the pressure, the bit puts pressure in their mouth and the bridle puts pressure on their face, and pretty soon they get used to what the, the rider is trying to do. And when, the, when the, the horse gets sensitive to an experienced rider, the horse can sail. I have a niece. She does barrel racing. She got a... Uh, full-ride scholar, uh, scholarship to college, riding a horse around barrels. And the horse learned to respond. And I would say that's a great picture of us. When we're intent on sensing the Spirit's hand, the reins on our mouth, then the old stuff, you, just, you can't obey God and disobey God at the same time, right? You're either going to do what, you got to be focused somewhere, and when we're focused on obeying God, a lot of that other stuff just is displaced. Your mind 
needs to be constantly saying, Lord, what ought I to say in this situation? Lord, let your Spirit guide me. Now, Jesus promised Spirit-led speech. Did you know that? Look in Luke chapter 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about what you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Very interesting when you think about it. We're not, we're not to waste a second thinking about what's going to happen if we ever get drugged before the authorities and, and are ever confronted uh, for our faith in Christ. We're not even to give it a second thought because the Holy Spirit's going to be there and He's going to speak through us. Well, why is that? Because I believe by being a disciple of Jesus on a day-to-day basis, by submitting to Him so that we're learning to speak what He would speak and to say what He would say, that, and that daily habit of discipleship and yielding to the Holy Spirit will come to us in our greatest need. And if God can come to us in our greatest need when our life is on the line, don't you think He can come to us when our feelings get hurt? Don't you think he can come to us when things don't go our way, when we're angry, we're frustrated? Absolutely. We can be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Every time now you see a horse, I want you to see a sermon. God's speaking to you. Every time you see a horse being ridden, it's a reminder to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, whether the horse is being ridden by a cowboy or by an equestrian jumping, or, and you've seen it, even by a monkey, you you can be controlled. The Spirit can guide us. James 2 reminds us, if anyone does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. Another principle from nature, small things control large objects. Look at ships, verse 4 it says, Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the pilot directs. This is, again, the power of spiritual leverage. This is an example from nautical engineering. A lot of Navy guys, I'm assuming, in the area here. And what did we learn? A very small rudder can control the physical dynamics and force. It's very interesting how it works, how this tiny little rudder can move this huge ship. Go down to Coronado, go down to South Bay, and what do you see? Those huge Nimitz-class uh, aircraft carriers. And when they're fully loaded, they weigh about 103 tons. That's 206 million pounds. And yet, up on the brig somewhere, bridge, there is a 180-pound pilot steering a 203-million-pound ship. Spiritual leverage, spiritual power. In the same way, if your tongue is controlled by the Holy Spirit, everything benefits, everything shifts, everything moves. So we need to pray, Lord, let the Holy Spirit pilot our tongues. And that would be easy, except (laughs) our little tongue has some very big problems. And this is where James is going to drill down, and uh, we're going to get real practical here. 
and I don't know if, I know this is not what the world likes to hear, but it is the truth. I hope you can handle the truth about your tongue and your nature. And you say, well, are you going to be hard on me, Pastor? Yes, I am. I'm going to be very hard. I'm going to be hard on myself too. Well, what if that hurts my self-esteem? Good. Because I want you to have something better to have your esteem in. Rather than esteeming yourself and, and your, your own fragile ego, let's find our esteem in Christ. That's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, and because of Him, that is because of God's grace, you are in Christ Jesus who has become to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts what? Boast in the Lord. We're going to have to remember that. The Christian boasts in the Lord. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. He is our wisdom, period. And the older you get in Christ, (laughs) the more you realize how true that truly is. So what's the problem with our tongue? Well, the first thing is it's a boastful arsonist. Verse 5. So the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts. It boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. As I was translating this from the Greek, the word great there is the word megla. And I, I immediately thought, isn't that true? Our tongue is this little diminutive, arrogant megalomaniac. And he lives right here, full of delusions of grandeur, quick to boast of itself. If you will, have you ever heard of the little man complex? The little guy who's small and kind of insecure, so how does he make up for it? He's always acting tough, what's called the Napoleon complex. Or, if you will, in popular culture, We all have a Joe Pesci in our mouth. The mouthy little guy you want to just punch. But that's your tongue. That's you. That's me. So we have a boastful little arsonist in our mouth. What else is true about our tongue? It's a combustible cosmos. What do we mean by that? And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Notice what it says. It doesn't say anything less than this. It doesn't say the tongue sets fires. It says the tongue is fire. And our tongue reveals what is true about us. There's an inflammatory part of our nature that comes out in our words. And by nature, we're born this way, aren't we? We're born polluted with sin and stained. And how often is it that we've tarnished our testimony and ruined our reputations, stained our lives with an unguarded word coming out of our mouth? So our mouth, by nature, is under the sway of unrighteousness. By nature, we are self-righteous. By nature, we are self-centered. By nature, we're self-absorbed. If you will, our, our tongue is only echoing the arrogant, infernal spirit of Antichrist that's in the world. And our tongue is a microcosm. It's a microcosm of this rebellious world ablaze 
and unrighteousness. Now, we saw what fires could do just a few years ago. Remember the fires that swept through North County? And you saw those pictures, those fires would come rushing up those canyons, 30 feet high walls of, of fire just blowing across neighborhoods. And you could see those tornadoes of fire. I don't know what they're called, but they're like little tornadoes uh, that were just spinning around, darting everywhere, burning everything on in its course. That's your tongue. That's what's in our mouth. And we better be aware of it. Remember Sherman's march, that brutal march during the Civil War where he set everything on fire, scorched earth. How many of us look back on our lives and there's some scorched earth behind us? We've said things. Ah, I wish I'd never said that. God help us. Like the unquenchable fires of hell, our mouths are demonic dumpster fires. Growing up, remember, we'd see the commercial, Smokey the Bear. And what was Smokey the Bear's slogan? What? Only what? Only you can prevent forest fires. Well, that might be good when you go camping, but let me tell you what, that won't do you any good with this one. Because you can't control it. You do not have the power to control it. Only the Holy Spirit can transform the way you use your mouth. And only God's grace can give you that. How do you fight fires? Some of you know. You set a backfire, right? Isn't it interesting on the day of Pentecost, what shows up? Tongues of fire. And what did they do? They spoke the praises of God in every language of the people that could hear it. The Spirit can transform us. We have to set a backfire to this fire, and it's the fire of the person of the Holy Spirit in our life. Let's go further. What else is true about our tongue? Verse 7, it's a fiery serpent. Every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. This is an ironic tragedy, isn't it? And we see it on display right here in San Diego. We can go down to SeaWorld and we can see a six-ton killer whale respond to tr and do tricks. He will splash you. He will flip. He will twist. He will turn. Six tons of killer whale can be controlled, but our tongue that weighs one-tenth of one pound cannot be controlled. A tragic irony. Why? Because it seems to have a mind of its own, doesn't it? And it's, it's talked about there. It's, it's like it's a snake ready to strike. And how do we know? Let somebody say something wrong to you. Let somebody, something happen and you get mad. Do we have to try to come up with something? No. We have to stop it because our tongue, it's like a coiled snake. It's ready to strike. That's the nature of our tongue. We need to crush the head of that serpent. And only the grace of God and Jesus Christ can do that. And then finally, the description of your tongue, it's a freak. It's a freak of nature. Verses 9 through 12. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. 
From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So Paul is concluding then this appeal uh, to using our words in accordance with our faith, where we integrate this by a call to consistency. He's saying, are you really comfortable with the dissonance that's in your life? This, this pressure we all feel, we know what to say, we know what we should say, we aspire to say, and yet, here it comes. There's this tension in ourselves. And do you like this idea that fresh water and salt water coming out of the same source? No, that's not right. It's, that's unnatural. Can trees bear fruit except according to their own nature? No. Can we bless God on Sunday morning here? And we will in just a few moments in response to his word, worship and bless him. We'll even taste with our mouths the signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Are we comfortable then with this same mouth to go out and curse and sin and belittle and tear down? We should fill this moral schizophrenia that we're walking in and we should lament it we should whine and cry and beg for God to rescue us. Just as remember when Isaiah was being called of the Lord in that beautiful vision in Isaiah chapter 6, and he, he's confronted with the holiness of God, and the angels are crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And Isaiah is confronted with that reality. He says, woe is me, I'm a man of what? Unclean what? Lips. And, what, and then the grace of God is manifest. What happens? Then the angel comes and takes a coal from the altar and comes over and touches Isaiah's lips and purifies them. That's what God wants to do with us today. The coals from the altar. Lord, come, cleanse, fill me with your spirit. Cleanse me and cleanse my words that I might glorify you. So as Christians today, we've been delivered from the eternal consequences of our sinful words. And by God's grace, we've been made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we are not always following the law of liberty, are we? We've hurt others and ourselves by not letting the Holy Spirit guide our speech. We are, not guilty. we are guilty of not speaking the truth in love. A lot of times we want to be all truthy, don't we? We're going to tell them the truth. That's the right thing. And we do. And, they, and the truth needs to be told, but it's not always from a heart of love. Sometimes we're all lovey-dovey when, hey, we should have told them the truth because we care about them. It can only be said of Jesus that he perfectly spoke what the Father would have him say. And that's our prayer. And it should be your prayer. Lord, only let me say to that person what you would want me to say to them at this time. The right word at the right time to the right person. That doesn't mean you say the same thing to everybody. Jesus didn't say the same thing to everybody, did he? When he saw someone who was broken and hurting and contrite and humble and needed to be reassured of God's mercy and grace, he poured it out on them. 
When he saw someone who was self-righteous and, and pharisaical, he rebuked them. And both were an act of love. And so it's not so easy. Wouldn't it be nice if we just had a little formula? This is what we say. This is, it's not that simple. We need the wisdom of God. We need the maturity that comes from experience and learning how the Holy Spirit guides us to say the right thing at the right time for the right reason to the persons to whom God brings us. But ultimately, we've got to trust in Christ's righteousness. Our words will drive us back to Jesus probably faster than anything else in our lives where we say things. Even this week, I'm, I'm playing the tapes. I've had to meditate on this for three weeks, and this has been cleaning my clock. Because every word I say, and oh, I shouldn't have said that. And this is good. Thank you, Pastor Matt, I think, for letting me have to deal with this. But we replay the tapes. Lord, I didn't honor you there. I gave in to the flesh. We confess with James that if we don't bridle our tongues, we deceive our own hearts. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, you've got a bigger problem than any Christian does in this room. Because you'll never be justified before God by saying the right thing. If I just say and be the right person, because you've already condemned yourself a thousand times, no, 10,000 times by what has come out of your mouth. Every lie, every blasphemy, everything that we've ever said that dishonors God has condemned us. But the good news is that if you will flee to Christ, that judgment which is inevitable, that's coming to everybody. You don't have to stand before Christ as his enemy. You can stand before Christ as his child and be rewarded for what you do in this world rather than condemned for rejecting him. So today, if you don't know Jesus, he is calling you, he is inviting you, and now is the day to make that decision. And if you have not done that, I pray God the Holy Spirit will give you the grace right now to say yes to him and hear his voice. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. This has been a very searching portion of your word, and Lord, we all have regrets. We all lament our sin, and Lord, please help us to make that sin bitter to us. Help us to loathe our sins. And Father, I, I thank you for the mercy that is available to us, the mercy that we will partake of here at your table. And Lord, for the, the washing of your word that's washing over us right now. Lord, we come in confession and we repent and we say, Lord, your word is true. We do not want to be deceived. We, by the power of the Holy Spirit, surrender the reins of our tongue to you. Lord, bridle us and control our speech. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody here who cannot say with confidence that they know that they are yours, that their sins are forgiven, Lord, that you would do a work right now, that you would grant them saving faith, Lord, that they would turn from sin to you, and Lord, that they would embrace the mercy that you've extended to us through your Son and his shed blood. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to take a few moments in the Lord's presence to respond to what we've heard today. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? As I was speaking, did something come to mind? Is there someone you need to apologize to other than the Lord? 
Is there something you need to do to make it right with somebody? Before you come to the table of the Lord, the Scripture says we need to examine ourselves. And so, Lord, we do. Search us and try us and know our heart. Hallelujah. If you're here and you don't know Christ, in a few moments we're going to have everyone who's a believer who wants to come to the table and receive the sign of the covenant. But if you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is the time now to do that. Ask Him to come in to save you, to cleanse you, to wash you. Hallelujah.